0: Ontario voters go to the polls in just a few days, but it hasn't exactly been a barn-burner of a campaign. Despite trying to make a dent in Doug Ford's support and opinion polls, the Liberals and the NDP still trail the PCs. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Sabrina Mado and Toronto Sun columnist Brian Lilly join me to discuss why voters may be feeling disengaged, how the leaders have fared so far, what we can expect in the waning days of the campaign, and what's at stake for the opposition leaders. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. Ontario is now in the final stretch of its provincial election campaign, and watching it as a political outsider... To Ontario, I've been struck by how sleepy a campaign this has been and it's opposite what I would have expected coming into what ultimately could have been a referendum on Doug Ford's pandemic performance. Sabrina, what are your thoughts on how the campaign has gone in the first three quarters?
1: I agree with you. It's been incredibly sleepy. The public seems very disengaged and uninterested overall. Part of that might be pandemic fatigue, fatigue from wars overseas, the economy. But also, it's been an election that's almost a foregone conclusion. Unless something wild happens, Doug Ford is going to win. The question is, by how much? And it's come down to who's going to take second place, the Liberals or the NDP. And also with Ford, really avoiding the campaign trail and avoiding media, there's been less access to him. And he's not known for staying out of controversy or having flub ups. So that has kept things a little bit more boring as well. And if you look at the opinion polls, they've stayed relatively stable the entire way through so far. So people aren't really having big swings of opinion or reacting to events or debates.
0: And Brian, from your perspective, why do you suppose that there hasn't been that movement? Do you think that, as Sabrina said, that there's just a lot of fatigue around some of the bigger issues, or do you feel that people have kind of locked in their vote
2: even before the writ dropped? Well, I think for two of the leaders, people have very clear ideas of who they are and whether or not they like them. You know, what's happening with Doug Ford is reminding me to a little bit of a degree to Mike Harris's second term when he actually, I think he won a bigger majority then. But people who didn't like Mike Harris the first time around were like, well, you know, I don't like everything he's done, but he did what he said he would do. And that helped Mike Harris get reelected the second time. There's a lot of voters who were not fond of Ford, didn't like how he handled certain things. But what I hear a lot is, well, you know, he, he did as well as he could in the pandemic, and it was a mess for everyone. And then they look at the other two, and you've got Horvath, who's in her fourth election, who voters have had a chance to make premier three previous times, and came close to last time, and then pulled back. And, you know, she has not performed well as opposition leader. So she's not going anywhere. And Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, is, you know, facing two problems. One, he's tied to the past liberal government, which by its end was very unpopular, the win government. But he's also kind of been in the witness protection program because he was elected liberal leader 10 days before we went into a full province-wide lockdown. So, you know, people aren't willing to forgive the liberals yet. He hasn't been able to show himself off enough. And the only point I'd quibble with Sabrina on is this idea that Doug Ford isn't out there. All three of them do a media event a day and they take questions. In most campaigns that I've covered across the country, nationally and provincially, in multiple places, that's about normal. But, you know, people have this idea that Ford's hiding. He's out there and people just aren't interested in what he's saying or what the opposition leaders are saying.
0: Sabrina, looking at the three-party leaders and going into this, I had a sense that it was kind of Doug Ford's election to lose if he did anything on the campaign trail that was seen as a gaffe or, you know, he underperformed this campaign, he might lose support. But beyond that, the opposition leaders had a tough time to knock him off his game and knock him out of government for you where did andrew horvath and stephen del duca go wrong this campaign were they picking the wrong issues were they trying to poke at the wrong things with doug ford or did they not do a good enough job of selling themselves
1: i think like brian mentioned the issues is twofold that andrew horvath has been around a long time She, in that time, hasn't managed to sufficiently inspire Ontario voters or really get her hook. Last time, when the NDP rose to become the official opposition, that seems like it was more in response to this incredible distaste for the Liberals by the end of their regime. And then Stephen Del Duca just isn't very well known. And the two have also spent more time fighting one another than targeting Ford and the things that he was deeply unpopular for during the pandemic. I think Andrea Horboth is probably coming to the end of her time as NDP leader, at least, if not in politics. She's had her shot. She's had her run. And for her not to be able to capitalize, especially on there's a lot of concern over labor issues right now, affordability. These are things that the NDP should be presenting big ideas on. And instead, their platform is almost identical to the liberal platform, to be quite honest. So there's not even a lot of room for good debate there. And they're just not attracting voters.
0: Brian, Sabrina mentioned labor issues. One of the things that stuck out to me this campaign is the fact that Doug Ford has been receiving, you know, a number of endorsements from people or groups that you may traditionally associate with NDP endorsements, specifically some of the trade unions out there. What is it that Ford has been doing to appeal to these groups? Why may you, have you seen the switch in allegiance to the PC
2: party? It's very transactional. Doug Ford will let these guys work and the other two won't. Ford's hooked in on a good sales line, line of attack against Andrea Horvath. As he's talking about how he'll build things, he says Andrea Horvath would rather protest a road than build a road. If you're talking about LiUNA, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Boilermakers, the Pipe Fitters, all these trade unions, construction trade unions that have endorsed Ford, These are people that will be building hospitals, building infrastructure, building highways, building homes. And time and again, Ford has said, you know, his slogan is, I'll get it done. And he's tried to say, we're the party of yes, and the other two are the party of no. And they walk into that trap because they keep saying, well, Doug Ford will do this and we won't. (laughs) You know, why, why are you reinforcing your opponent's attack message on you? You know, And Sabrina's right. Their platforms are not very different. So why would I shift my vote? If I'm on the progressive side, why would I shift my vote? It's to stop Doug Ford. Obviously, progressive voters either don't care enough about that or don't trust the other guy to do it. I thought the best shot that anybody had at beating Doug Ford was Stephen Del Duca, but he would have to have run a very different campaign. I've written about this. I've talked about it in broadcast and I've told it straight to Del Duca. He told me when he was running for leadership, he was a Jean Chrétien centrist liberal. Well, he's trying to outpace Andrea Horvath on the left. If he had run as a middle of the road, I'm not too far left. I'm not too far right. I'm the mushy middle. Come to me. Everyone will be comfy. And then you just hammer Doug Ford. Doug Ford runs an incompetent government that allows you to hit Ford on COVID missteps. But because the public also wants to move away from covid you could also hit him on a bunch of other things and just say he ran an incompetent government we'll be competent we'll be the steady hand at the wheel you know we can do this and instead he's thrown a you know ton of different ideas that sound a lot like the NDP that sound a lot like the greens and the three of them are fighting over their voter pool and they're fighting each other and nobody's winning except Doug Ford who's you know so far laughing all the way to the polls next Thursday
0: Sabrina, for you, labor issues and affordability issues seem to be key issues in this campaign. One of your most recent pieces for National Post talked about the fact that the opposition just keeps trying to hammer Doug Ford as being cozy with developers, and this gives Ford the opportunity to call them anti-development. Why is that issue so important for Doug Ford in terms of winning votes, and why are the opposition failing their voter base when they try and bring these issues up
1: yeah the opposition has for a long time used a go to criticism of doug ford being cozy with developer buddies as they would say and now he's hitting back and saying well you're anti-development especially when it comes to highway 413 and the reason why that is important to voters in this climate is obviously the housing crisis which is largely steeped in supply Voters know that we need more supply. We need it quickly. They care less about where that supply goes or who builds it than just getting it done and getting affordable housing. It's tough to be precious about which developers are developing or where they might be doing so when people literally cannot afford homes. So that developer messaging is actually, I think, crippling the Liberals and NDP and benefiting Ford this time around.
2: And you know another thing along that message? is that Andrea Horvath has only spoken up about labor issues when it's been public sector unions. All through COVID, you would have thought that COVID would have been solved by ending the number one thing she talked about, which was Bill 124. Now, if you're not a public servant in Ontario, you have no idea what that is, but she talked about it all the time. And Bill 124 capped the rate of annual wage increase that the public sector unions could get. She wasn't talking about gig economy workers in the same way she wasn't talking about these trade unions and their issues in the same way she was narrow casting to people in the nurses unions and the teachers unions and that's the only time she talked about labor
1: exactly and i think that's a particularly big missed opportunity when it comes to gig workers or contract workers because they're an ever-growing share of the population especially in the younger voter base which has been the ndp's traditional bread and butter and to not make that a front and center issue is just a missed opportunity
0: We'll be right back. Looking at the affordability issues, obviously each party is coming out, different tax ideas, the gas price cap, different taxation issues. Are there any party who are really speaking to issues that really affect people's pocketbooks, things like housing prices in a positive way, things like food prices in a positive way? Or is it this kind of the same old, same old, we're going to tax these people more, we're going to tax you less? Where are areas that they've been really successful in getting that affordability message through? Sabrina?
1: I would argue none of them have been particularly compelling on the affordability file. You've had Stephen Del Duca with his Bucca transit ride across the province promise. But You know, that seems like a Band-Aid solution, more of a campaign slogan than anything else and promises to take the tax off certain prepared foods under $20. But in terms of real meaningful solutions, I'd say none of the housing platforms are great. And there just hasn't been something that's stuck out there for me.
0: And Brian, what about from your perspective?
2: I think they all have good little gimmicky things that speak to their audiences, like the buck-a-ride or the tax off Prepared meals under 20 bucks or for t- rebating the license plate sticker fee that had been going up for, for so many years, things like that. Yeah, they, you know, it all plays a little bit, but it's not a, a long term solution to the problem of inflation. The issue for provincial governments is they just don't have the levers. I mean, the federal government can't solve inflation on its own, but they have some levers, monetary policy, budgetary policy, things like that. The province just has far less ability to move those needles on housing. They do need to get to work on it. And they all came up with the idea of we'll build 1.5 million homes. That came out of a government report that said that's how many are needed over the next 10 years to deal with the supply issues Sabrina was discussing. Will any of them actually go in and force municipalities to allow building? Because that's the next big problem. Durham, which is a major region just east of Toronto. They're about to pass their new official plan no new land for development. Mm -hmm. That's a booming area. Hamilton is doing the same. Ottawa, they didn't do none, but they may as well have done none. I don't know how all these people say, we love immigration. Let's bring in more people every year. And you're bringing a quarter million to 400,000 people. So about a quarter million come to the Toronto area. And then you say, but no new land for housing and you can't build in my backyard. Well, what kind of message is that? How does that help immigrants? How does it help the communities? it doesn't. So we need a premier that will bust through that. The only one I have faith in to do that is Doug Ford, if you get serious about it. The other two are too close to allies at the municipal level that don't want development and have been passing these things. These are liberal and NDP city councils with close ties to their respective parties that are passing these no new development measures that make zero sense based on everything else they say about what they want.
0: Now, looking at the final week of the campaign, is there anything that the opposition leaders can do to move the needle on support to make a dent in Doug Ford's popularity at this point? Or is it kind of a done deal now?
1: I would argue it's probably a done deal. The biggest battle for the next week will be between the Liberals and the NDP for who gets second place, and both for Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath for their careers. I mean, Stephen, the question is, will he win his own riding? For Andrea, it's will she hold on to her position as leader? And that's really the only question right now is what happens to the two of them.
2: I would suggest they could set their hair on fire, but Del Duca's bald already, so that's (laughs) not going to help them. And there is a real question about whether Del Duca can win his own riding. Uh, That's been raised by colleagues at other media outlets. The premier, uh, Doug Ford, has raised it several times from the microphone. He's predicted that Del Duca will not even win his own riding. And Ford went campaigning there the other day. Horvath will win her own riding. You know, Hamilton Center is reliably NDP as they come. But the party, there's a group called the 901 Club that's looking to oust her as soon as the polls close. So the polls close at 9 and at 901, once it's clear that she is not going to be premier, they want her gone. Right now, she's third in the polls. But due to weird voting patterns, there's a good chance she will remain opposition leader until her own party takes her out.
0: That's the one question that kind of lingers for me is, typically if a leader goes from third party to opposition leader and then back down to third party, it wouldn't be a surprise to see them shown the door or decide to hang it up for Andrea Horvath. Is there a chance that she sticks around even if she retains opposition leader status, Sabrina?
1: I'd say most likely not. Again, she's been around a long time. She hasn't been able to meaningfully improve the NDP's prospects or um, latch onto issues recently. And It seems like the success that the NDP has had has been more in reaction to other parties or other leaders not becoming well-known rather than her being popular with voters. And
0: Brian, on that matter, do you figure she's gone even if she hangs on to the number two spot?
2: I'll tell you, my family, uh, my parents, my brother, my sister, their families, they all live in Hamilton, and they're terrified that she resigns or is shown the door and then runs for mayor of Hamilton, (laughs) because they find that thought to be quite frightening. But that is something that's being floated around already, is that if she's out the door, then this fall, she'll run to be mayor of Hamilton, she won't leave politics. I just don't see how she stays in. You know, Del Duca will, you know, his victory will be getting official party status back, getting some funding back and rebuilding the party. If he becomes the official opposition leader, goes from third party to second, that'll be a big coup for him. You know, the realistic view among liberals I talk to is 25 to 30 seats at this point when we're a week out, unless something dramatic happens. It's not a case of taking power it's taking a good spot in the legislature
0: the last question i have on this election campaign i know there's still a week to go so there's still time for you know some kind of crisis or some kind of issue to come to the fore but for both of you where do you feel that the leaders have let voters down Uh, is there an issue where they should have been talking about it and they just weren't or they failed to really address something that's kind of on the minds of voters right now sabrina
1: I think there's been a surprising lack of focus on healthcare, long-term care homes. I'm really reckoning with what happened during the pandemic. And I think part of that is, again, voters are fatigued. Also, at this point, the Liberals and NDP don't really have a meaningful alternative to what Ford offers. But obviously, that's been a major over the last few years that has exposed major, major holes in our system and we are unprepared for anything like this happening again in the future and it doesn't seem like anything significant is going to change.
2: And
0: Brian, last word to you on this.
2: On that issue of long-term care, like Ford laid out his plan over the last year. It was in his budget and long-term care could have been something that the opposition parties used and showcased and, and presented solid, valid alternatives. Instead, they're attacking each other over the fact that um, they're both promising to get private care homes out of the system. Neither one of them's actually put in enough money for it, but they're attacking each other over the issue of, well, you didn't put enough money. No, you didn't put in enough money. So I think there's a larger question of whether that's even a, you know, a valid way to go. Nobody's talking about that because on those issues, it's the liberals and the NDP beating each other up and Ford smiling and waving like the penguins in Madagascar.
0: I guess now it all comes down to how Ontarians vote and then how many of them vote on Election Day. Brian, Sabrina, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Brian Lilly and Sabrina Mado. More from them at torontosun.com and nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.